Welcome to the Turning Point Podcast. I am your host, Marita Espada. If you are already a fan of the podcast, thank you for your support and welcome back. If you're new to the podcast, I speak with top creators and entrepreneurs as we discuss business, creativity, mental health, and how those may interconnect with each other. Today's conversation was the definition of what a turning point can be for anyone. My guest, Jeremy, is an executive life coach, a mindfulness trainer, and a former Buddhist monk. Jeremy overcame addiction, shame, self-judgment, and depression in his early 20s with the help of mindfulness meditation and Buddhist philosophy, which not only helped him let go of destructive behaviors, it also allowed him to connect with deeper meaning and purpose in his life. For the past 10 years, Jeremy has been teaching mindfulness and emotional intelligence practices at universities, recovery centers, and companies throughout Europe, Asia, and the U.S., He has been featured in places like Men's Health, Livestrong Magazine for his work in helping people overcome compulsive behaviors and addictions. Jeremy's also a certified teacher with the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence program initially developed at Google. He now combines science-based expertise with a hunger for personal development to help others discipline their minds and achieve genuine inner peace and fulfillment. If you are enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would follow, subscribe, share the podcast with a friend, and maybe even leave a rating and a review. And now, let's kick off the show. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for joining the Turning Point podcast today. How are you? Doing great. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So for the audience and just the episode overall, um, I wanted to kick off with like your origin story, right? Like. Who's Jeremy and how did Jeremy get to right now? Yeah. Yeah. So my origin story really goes back to college, I would say. I mean, it, everyone's origin story obviously goes back to childhood <laughs> and before. Um, but a real turning point for me was in college uh, to kind of set the scene. I was one of your very typical high achievers um, doing really well in all my classes, captain of a sports team, had a lot of friends. Uh, addicted to setting the curve in my classes. So I was studying genetics at UC Davis and very much addicted to validation, that kind of approval from other people, approval from my professors, and also addicted to just having a lot of pleasure in my life. Um, So a lot of relationships, uh, going out dancing and clubbing and all these things. And I remember having this pivotal moment in my life where everything on the outside of my life externally was going well. So I had a lot of friends doing well in school. A lot of people liked me, but internally I was really struggling. I was feeling empty inside. My life felt kind of just gray and meaningless, even though I was experiencing a lot of uh, pleasure and external things going well. Uh, And it was this one moment in particular where I was walking down the street in Davis, California. It was a beautiful sunny day, like you know, kind of a picturesque, when you think of the most beautiful day in the world, uh, that's what it was. And I was walking down the street. And I remember seeing these two girls in front of me, and they were walking in the same direction. And I was so kind of consumed by lust for these two women in front of me, I was just staring at their bodies. And it was in this moment when I realized that everything in my life, you know, that I wanted, I had been able to achieve. And everything was going well for me, but I was still unhappy because I was constantly wanting what I didn't have. 
And I would then I would get what I wanted, but then I would just want something new. And it was this moment of realizing that if I didn't really change the way I was living, if I didn't address something fundamental about my life, then I would never be happy. That it didn't matter how much more I would get, none of it would actually fill that hole, that kind of void in my life. And that moment actually showed me something else really important, which was that the experience of lust itself was really painful. And I, I later went on to realize that it's not just lust, but any sort of craving, like craving for something that you don't have in that moment is an experience of, of emptiness because you're thinking, unless I have this thing, I won't be happy. Whether it's a relationship or a partner or a grade or you know, a certain amount of money in your bank account. Um, so that moment was really pivotal for me. Uh, and that forced me to, it felt like an existential crisis. You know, it felt like this moment of realizing, okay, something's got to change because if I don't fix it, you know, I'm going to be miserable forever. And in particular in relationship to the lust, I realized that I was going to be, you know, this kind of perverted old man just chasing after women um, my whole life. So that got me interested in concepts around happiness and um, what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to feel content and fulfilled? Uh, and so I started exploring books and found a book on meditation. Uh, and that, that really changed my life. Yeah, I have so many questions. because Yeah, I wanted to I, slow I, down. <laughs> yes, because I, I can relate to this story as well. Um, I'm, so I'm writing a book called The Renegade's Journey to Stillness. And so my thing was when I was younger, uh, being like addicted to adrenaline. So any type of sport, anything that I could get that adrenaline rush, like even to the point that I almost died a couple of times, that was like my thing. Mm. And so it, I, there's a lot of people that say there's not a really a turning point, but I was like, but there is a self-awareness point where you realize that this might not be great. Just like, for example, I have some friends that were overweight and they were just not feeling great. And so there was a point in their life where you just look yourself in the mirror or you're trying to play with your child or mm. your dog. And you're just like, I'm not there mentally yeah. and physically. So that is that self-awareness point. But so the question that I wanted to have for you, because I think it's a question that I get asked a lot of times too, um, if I'm speaking about meditation or just going through a simple like body scan, right, with someone um, trying to teach them a little bit about this tool that I've been using for so many years now is the difference between like ambition and pleasure. Like, so how mm -hmm. did you continue to have goals but yeah. these goals sometimes give you pleasure. And so how did you not get attached to that pleasure? So it's yeah. a very difficult question to, to kind of answer sometimes. And so I wanted to see what are your thoughts on that, right? Not specifically an answer, but what are your thoughts about if you were to not split them up, but, but basically put some sort of definition to both of them so we can identify them when we see them? Yeah. Like, how would you approach that? Yeah. So first, I love what you said about the turning point, like the, the self-awareness turning point. It's not always a single moment in time, but usually there's some moment of awareness that something is not working and I need to make a change. Um, so it's kind of an emotional rock bottom that you hit where you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I can't continue living this way. Um, so I, I just kind of I love that you brought that into this space. In terms of the difference between pleasure and you know what are some of like healthy 
aspirations for me that word aspiration right. is a, a way that I use to still connect with what's important to me um, and actually desire itself sometimes gets a bad rap in you know meditation circles or Buddhism um, but there are actually many healthy desires so understanding the difference between desire and craving is also important um, that desire is just wanting something to happen and you can want something really wholesome to happen you can desire the end of world hunger you can desire people to be free from suffering uh, you can just desire to have a, a genuine moment of contentment and those are beautiful wholesome desires or aspirations what makes something kind of the the unwholesome side of it is when it becomes this kind of craving or thirst for some experience to happen where it's like i need this to happen and if it doesn't happen i won't be okay and it's very tight and constricted. You can kind of feel the difference when one, you know, I gave that example of walking down the street and being in this state of lust after these women that were in front of me. And it was tunnel vision. It was my eyes were just completely focused on the people in front of me and my whole world, everything else blacked out. And it was just this feeling of, I want that. And until I have that, I can't be happy. So for me, that helps me understand the difference of what is a, you know, a, a pleasant experience that I want to experience because it's why not versus this craving, thirst filled uh, lust for some experience. Yeah, and I completely understand that. And I guess another question along the lines of that, um, that I even ask myself a lot too, is once we are kind of overcoming um, perhaps an addiction or an unhealthy habit. Um, I guess, is there a point in, in, in life where you might come back to that or where mm, yeah. you think about that life or those thoughts come in? I don't know if we could label them at this point, like intrusive thoughts, but because it used to be like a habit that you had within your day, right? Mm -hmm. um, but like, is there a point where that might happen to you where your mind might go back to this. And, um, and with that also comes like a sense of guilt, right? Cause mm. you're like, I worked so hard to kind of get to this spot and uh -huh. I feel uh -huh. like I'm coming back to it, Yeah. but how do I've always kind of come back to that myself with like, I can't feel guilty for if I come back to be like adrenaline mm. and like, yeah, you know, yeah, just, yeah just sitting just instead of just sitting in my patio and enjoying the day and listening to the birds and having my yeah. fire pit and like I want to go back to that adrenaline like that never served me it never really served yeah. me right. so I feel guilty if I go back to that feeling but I, I have yeah. already kind of a process to kind of bring myself back um do you think that's accurate do you think that's something that's healthy and helpful yeah. as well or we be doing other things as well in in your experience so, so I would love to, to kind of set the stage for your listeners also, you know, the, one of the main things that I realized when I had this existential crisis was that I was watching so much pornography and it was really hardwiring lust into my mind. And it was creating the conditions of kind of a miserable life because every night I would watch two or three hours of porn and I didn't realize how it was affecting my life until it was too far, until it was too gone. Um, and so a lot of my story of, of mindfulness and meditation and recovery revolves around th 
things around porn addiction and sex addiction. And this topic of, you know, what level of it is healthy and if your mind comes back to it is especially important when you're talking about something like porn addiction, where shame is a huge component of it. Because a lot of people who are stuck in addiction, shame is one of the components that keeps you locked into it. And one of the things that was really helpful for me in recovering and finding freedom from the kind of mental disease of addiction was letting go of shame. And so sexual thoughts come to me all the time. And in fact, realizing that these kind of thoughts are natural and a beautiful expression of humanity is important. And to realize you're not broken, you're not a bad person for having sexual thoughts, um, that aspect of self-compassion and saying it's okay and I'm not broken and there's nothing wrong with me for having these desires or these longings is really important. And it's the same, I imagine, for adrenaline addiction. Like having the longing to experience adrenaline, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, it's hardwired into us to want excitement, to want pleasure. And right. the more that you can kind of say, hey, you know, this is just my body wanting something that's pleasant. Because it also helps to understand evolutionarily, it benefited us for 50,000 years to follow those signals to follow pleasure, to run away from anything painful or unpleasant. And so not only is it, you know, millions of years of evolution that's hardwiring in those instincts, it's also societal, you know, that's teaching us to go after things that are shiny and fast and exciting. And so there's a lot that's, you know, it's not your fault that you have these feelings, whether it's wanting to look at pornography or wanting to, use alcohol or drugs or wanting to experience adrenaline so the more that you can kind of pause and say oh i'm not broken because i'm having these thoughts um, that sets a, a stronger foundation for then choosing how to live in a more skillful way where you can say oh now that i've seen it and i know that this doesn't serve me in the long run do i still want to go after it and then you can kind of say oh it's enticing but i know it's not supporting the vision of, you know, the best version of myself. So that's kind of how I look at, at those, those topics. Yeah, no, and that's a great explanation. And like you mentioned, there's also, right, in 2022, like we, we not only, the material that we consume, even when you're just watching YouTube or something and an ad comes up that might trigger something, but it's also mm -hmm. evolution. And so I think a lot of people in the meditation space kind of, reference back to the self-credit in that internal voice but that internal voice back in the day was you know because of evolution a way for us to be aware of our surroundings mm -hmm. you know and, and and just to survive uh, as humans right like and so with time it's kind of evolved to this self-credit that lives inside of you why am I not progressing in my career? Why can I found, find a relationship? Why can't I overcome an unhealthy habit or an addiction or whatever it can be? And this voice just keeps getting louder, perhaps as we get older, because we become more aware of all the things around us. So it is also not only the content that we're consuming, whatever platform you choose, but it's also this evolution within this as human beings. So it's, it's a really interesting mix of how do we find a balance in us, right? To 
like I mentioned, to find those, well, and to correct my original question, those aspirations versus that what's pleasure, right? Like mm. what's something that you want to go after um, as your own personal goal versus yeah. searching for that pleasure all the time. Yeah. And, you know, the negativity bias or the inner critic right. that, that is there, you know, that the saboteur or that just that strong voice of the inner critic that is in so many of us. Um, and again, it does have those evolutionary origins. And one of the things I love to do is whether it's in meditation or in coaching, when you notice the inner critic to actually thank it because it's trying to help you out. It's trying to keep you safe, you know, and to, to say, hey, thanks for, you know, looking out for me and trying to keep me safe but I'm not going to listen to you right now. So that is helpful already. But then also the question of whether it gets stronger as we age or weaker, it's really up to us, right? And that's one of the beauties of like the Buddha Dharma or, you know, Buddhist philosophy is the understanding that karma is not just what we do with our physical bodies, but even what we think about you know, has an impact on us. And so one of my favorite quotes, and this was really transformational for me is what you frequently think about and ponder upon becomes the inclination of the mind. So if you're always thinking self-critical thoughts, you're strengthening those neural pathways. And if you decide, you can say, I want to change my mind. So it's more self-loving, more accepting, more compassionate. The way to do that is by intentionally thinking more thoughts of love and kindness or self-compassion so you can change the trajectory of your life by intentionally choosing what kind of thoughts you have um, and that for me is you know really the power of of mindfulness is that you get to be intentional about what kind of thoughts you're thinking yeah and you know going even deeper in this subject too because we've kind of covered basically like the material that you might be consuming you mm -hmm. know um addiction or unhealthy habits that however they they became you know present in your life do you think that another component that has some influence in this is the people that you might be surrounding yourself with or do you think that it is completely unrelated to what might be happening within your own life um or these conversations with these people or even sometimes um I think there's people that want to surround themselves with like-minded people, but then you mm -hmm. keep having sort of the same conversations and then you don't have maybe a, like a healthy debate because they have a completely different opinion to yours. Mm -hmm. um, so that sounds like a compounded question, but to go back to the original one is, do you think that the people that we surround ourselves with have an impact into who we become, our thoughts yeah. and, and our ability to be mindful? Because, and I'll share just a little bit of my experience um, if I'm, if I, um, spending time with people that don't practice meditations, my conversations are very different. And so a lot of people just understand that meditation is this thing to make you feel good. And I'm like, no, meditation mm. has different types of, you know, scenarios, different types of practices. Like, it's just not, you meditate, that's it. Um, but when I speak with someone that's in the meditation community, it's just like, we understand each other. We understand the different types of meditation. We understand like we can really bond in that. Um, so that's just my my one example. But I, I mm. wanted to bring the question back to you. Yeah. Well, in, in terms of the question, do the people you surround yourself with influence mm -hmm. kind of your own trajectory? Well, totally. I mean, we all know that feeling, right? If you're constantly surrounded by people who are 
complaining all the time or just negative or gossiping it it can only like it's so hard to not let that affect you um, and if you're surrounding yourself with people who are practicing gratitude and contentment and compassion and being of service that influences you also so i think it's really important it's not just the people you surround yourself with it's everything you know what media you're consuming the people you surround yourself with the kind kind of environment you put yourself in um, really everything has an influence on you and just to be mindful of that and aware of that is is a good first step um, one of my favorite quotes is you're an average of the five people you spend the most time with and so just thinking about you know who who am I spending my time with and what kind of influence on my life is this having? Yeah. And I guess, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's like a popular opinion, but I've heard it before from some folks and say, but what if I'm spending time with these people because I want to maybe perhaps lead by example and teach them or show them by my own actions that we shouldn't be like gossiping around other people mm -hmm. or saying these things and yeah. maybe just focusing on ourselves and what we want to do and what brings us happiness and you know and kind of search within for your happiness first rather than looking outside um because i think about that sometimes too like if i'm still have maybe like a neighbor or a friend that that wants to reach out and spend some time but I know that what they want to do is gossip about someone else, mm. but I, I want to still have a conversation with them and show them like, maybe we look within ourselves first for that happiness and all of these things rather than talking about someone else. So that's my own personal yeah, dilemma, but yeah. I'm pretty sure a lot of people might have it as well, where yeah. you care for this person and you want to have a relationship with this person, but you just don't want to be inundated by the gossip or the yeah. negative thoughts or even like the victim mentality. That, that might not be even be in friends that you can choose to have a relationship with, but can be within your own family, right? Where is a parent or a sibling? Um, so that's always a very interesting, I think, subject that goes back to the material that we consume and things that might happen within our life that can affect us. Yeah. And it's striking a balance between that of, you know, how much you know, because it's also, it can be seen as not very compassionate to just leave behind any relationships right. that aren't supportive, right? Like the moment a relationship gets uh, difficult or challenging, or if somebody's not at their best to just say, well, you know, I only want to surround myself with positive people who are lifting me up. You know, that's not a very kind thing to do. Um, and so knowing where your balance is, I think is really important. Knowing that it's important to fill up your own cup so that you can, you know, be a support for your friends in challenging times. But if 90% of your friends are negative and gossiping and, you know, holding right. you down, then that's some, a time to kind of take action. I, I kind of think of it as like a five to one ratio. Like if I have five friends around me who are in general, kind of talking about things that lift me up and, and then I have, the emotional space and capacity to help people when they're in need. But if it's half and half, you know, that's too much for me. Yeah. If 50% of your friends are negative and gossiping, that's not, that's not the kind of life I want to live. And I think the more, you know, especially a lot of your listeners are interested in mindfulness and meditation, the more self-aware you become and the more aware in general of how things are influencing your mental health and well-being and growth, you see more and more clearly 
how important it is to to really be protective of the energy that you bring in whether it's the kind of news that you're reading or watching or um, just what media you're using or the people you're allowing into your life um, you really see how important it is to be careful with that I promise I have a good reason for the quick interruption. I have one quick reminder for you today. Who doesn't like free resources and tools? Well, let me share with you a few now. If you visit maritaspada.com, which the link will be in the description of the episode, and scroll down to my work, you can gain access to free templates, the Mindful Minute monthly newsletter, and even receive updates of my upcoming book, A Renegade's Journey to Stillness. With that said... Back to the show. Yeah, I agree. I wanted to see if we could do like a pivot and go back a little bit to your story, specifically recovering from addiction, specifically because you also help folks with that now, Um, whether it is individuals or entrepreneurs or even in organizations, um, as a meditation teacher, as a life coach. So I wanted to learn more about that journey and I mm. wanted to share that with the audience as well, um, as much as you would like to share, of course. But going back to that moment where um, you talk about the two women and so mm-hmm. being that kind of like the self-awareness moment rather than calling yeah. it the, the turning point, but that self-awareness moment in your life, um, you started getting more into mindfulness reading and and trying yeah. to change that within your life. But um. Are you able to share more about that journey? And then how did you get to the Jeremy that you are today and continue to work as, you know, being human is work every day. Mm -hmm. So wanted to learn more a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that moment was a big turning point for me of, of having that existential crisis of, okay, my life is headed down a path that I don't want it to head down. You know, I could see where I was going to end up if I didn't make a change, if I didn't do something, I was, you know, headed for a dark future. And so that really got me interested in mindfulness. And I started reading these books on meditation, ended up traveling to India and doing some silent meditation retreats. And, and that the silent meditation retreats in particular, and a style of meditation called Vipassana really transformed my life because it, it gave me a path to walk on to cultivate my mind. And I started realizing that if I want to be happy, which we all do, you know, and a lot of people mistake happiness for just feeling good all the time, but the kind of happiness Mm -hmm. I'm talking about is just inner fulfillment, that deep sense of feeling fulfilled with your life. Um, And if I wanted that, then what I needed to do was cultivate the qualities of mind that would allow that, you know, things like contentment, gratitude, compassion, service, Um, patience, all of these beautiful qualities that directly lead to that sense of inner fulfillment. And so meditation, in particular, these silent retreats or mindfulness um, was a direct way for me to start training the mind and rewiring my mind because my mind for 10 years of watching pornography had been so hardwired into craving and lust and objectification of women and all of these things that was leading me to suffering. And so I needed a path that was going to rewire my mind. Um, And so I started doing a lot of retreats, would go on a silent retreat once or twice a year. Um, And I ended up 
you know, after coming back from India, I went to grad school, was studying genetics, working on a PhD at Duke. And while I was there, I started teaching other graduate students and undergrads how to meditate. And it started off as a very uh, selfish thing. You know, I just, I knew that if I wanted to stay consistent with my own meditation practice, it would be helpful if I said, I'm going to be here. If anybody wants to join me, I'll be here every morning at 8 a.m. on campus. Um, and I did that for about four years. And, you know, sometimes nobody would come and it would just be me meditating. And sometimes people would come and they would say, I don't know how to meditate. And I would just teach them the basics. Um, and over time, I started teaching more and more people and people kept telling me that the way I was describing it in very pragmatic, easy to understand terms, not using a lot of spiritual terms, not using a lot of jargon, um, that they really found it easy to understand. And I found that really fulfilling, you know, being able to teach people about mindfulness and meditation and helping them look within helping people look at, okay, what's the quality of my life and what is actually going to lead to greater happiness? That was so fulfilling for me that after, you know, four years of doing that and teaching people meditation, I realized I wanted to spend my life teaching others about mindfulness and mental health and happiness. And I was less interested in the science that I was doing. So after four and a half years in my PhD program, I decided to leave and I said goodbye to the sciences, to academia, and started teaching mindfulness full-time. Um, that's when I moved to Asia, started living in Thailand, um, teaching meditation there and running retreats, things of that nature. Um, and then over time, you know, that shifted into working more with people one-on-one, -on -one, giving individual support. And that's when I realized it kind of came full circle where I was teaching you know, Vipassana meditation retreats and at some point, I realized that helping people one on one and going deep on personal issues was really important. And that my own story of porn addiction wasn't an isolated incident. That it was something that, you know, so many people struggle with in silence, because it's such a shameful, sensitive issue. It's a taboo. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah. totally taboo. Yeah, people don't want to admit it. People, you can talk about, oh, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic or recovering drug addict. But there's something about sex addiction that has this weird quality of being extra shameful. And so nobody wants to admit it. Nobody wants to talk about it, even though it's hyper prevalent and becoming more prevalent. I mean, the more addicted we are to our phones and technology and social media, you know, just think about when we were kids, having access to like a Playboy magazine was the most exciting thing in the world. But now every eight or nine-year-old kid has an unlimited amount of hardcore, high-speed pornography on their telephone. A selection, just, too, of platforms that they can visit. The variety is infinite. And the, I mean, there, there are said to be three things that contribute to something being addictive. The affordability, the accessibility, and the anonymity. And porn has all three. It's free. I mean, you don't have to pay for any porn if you don't want to. It's entirely accessible because you can access it from any smartphone anywhere in the world. And then it's also anonymous and so nobody knows that you're using it. And so it is one of these hyper stimulants that taps into something very deep and primal to all of us, which is our sexuality, which is a beautiful aspect of humanity, but it's getting hijacked by 
porn, you know, the corporations, I mean, it's a money making industry. Mm -hmm. um, it's exploitative. And so there is such such a huge problem and getting worse. And so I realized that, you know, I needed to actually open up about my own history with it, because there were so many other people that that need to hear that they're not alone and need to hear that there's there's hope for them for breaking free. So that's that was my story of kind of um, coming full circle. And so, I, you know, I started learning more about coaching and how to actually coach effectively um, and got my coaching certification. And, and really, that's what I focus on now is helping people break free from any kind of compulsive addictive behavior, whether it's porn addiction or video game addiction or uh, emotional eating exercise addiction. There's so many things we can get addicted to. And that's the other thing I'll just say about this is that it's never about the substance. A lot of people think, oh, well, okay, that drug is addictive inherently. So you, if you use it, you'll get addicted. But we know that it's never about the substance. It's about what's going on in your life that's causing you to reach out for an addictive behavior. That, you know, some people are actually able to have a healthy relationship with alcohol. Some people aren't. Some people, and very few, but some people can have a healthy relationship with heroin and some people can't, you know, they're in sub substances are more addictive and more dangerous than others. But inherently, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with an image of somebody having sex on a computer screen. We, we could talk about the ethical issues of the porn industry. That's another topic. Right. Um, but to understand that, you know, Gabor Mate has this beautiful quote. He says, the addiction is never the problem. The addiction is the attempt to solve the problem and understanding that addiction is a coping mechanism to, you know, cope with some unmet need, whether it's past trauma from your childhood or an emotional problem that you don't want to face. Um, and so realizing that recovery is not just about cutting off the substance. It's about doing the inner healing work to build a life that doesn't need addiction and distraction. Right. Addiction is so it can be very broad, right? Because we also have people that are addicted to going to stores and just, you know, shopaholics, yeah. right? And, yeah. and they're in they're either dealing with a past trauma or dealing with an emotion that's current, their current life, maybe they're not happy. And so they find that as refuge, she's continuing to, to consume more. And so it's all about as well, um, people that have a big platform, to take this addictions, for example, pornography, and just cut the taboo. Like, mm. regardless of political parties, one of my favorite first ladies is Betty Ford. Because back in the 70s, like, if you went to get help because you were an alcoholic, especially as a first lady, it she had the media on her. But she went and she got the help, and then she took the initiative to also build a place to help mm. others as well. And so... I think it really was a turning point in the 70s and 80s for people to be like, no, I, I am an alcoholic and I need help. And so it's yeah. people with big platforms that I think hold a big responsibility. And if they are you know, struggling with something to try to break that taboo so that other people feel like, wait, this other person is also feeling that I've been keeping this very quiet to myself. And so it's, I think it's also about that and people that might not even have a huge platform 
if they share a story, sometimes you even pick up a book of maybe an author that you never knew, but that book was impactful because it really helped you really like hit that, um, like right on the note on what, on what that might be. So I think that's also, that's also important. And I think one thing that you mentioned throughout your story and in helping others that I think is really a big takeaway is patience and time, right? Like it, you have to be patient and and you have to be able to be in for the long run in in just wanting to feel better and understand that that it takes it takes time right it's- yeah. yeah understanding that you're you're fundamentally working on rewiring the mind you know because the a lot right. of addictions are based in habit loops and it takes time to to rewire those habit loops you're forming new neural pathways and overriding other neural pathways and ones especially addictions that have started at an early age which especially for porn for many people starts at seven or eight years old those pathways are so deeply ingrained that it takes a long time and a lot of times they'll still be there for many many years if not for the rest of your life and it's learning how to work with the challenges that come with that, you know, when you do feel tempted or an urge to act out in an unskillful way, how do you handle yourself in those moments? And then also, you know, not just time and patience, but having a community that supports you, getting mentorship, getting guidance, getting accountability is very important when we're talking about recovery, because it's one of the biggest problems is if you try to do it alone and you fall off the wagon once, it's very hard to get back on the wagon if you don't right. have that kind of accountability or supportive community. Right. And no, and I and it's extremely helpful to have that system as well. That's why a lot of these companies that help you lose weight address emotional eating because mm-hmm. they're really tied to each other, right? And just mm-hmm. trying to lose weight alone. You might lose weight, but then something dramatic happens in your life, you're gonna go back to that. But having that support system where you can express what you're feeling and also hear other people. And I think a very important thing from this, too, is just meeting people that are going through the same thing and just being like you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And and their Mm -hmm. story seems very familiar. Like you can really step into their story. I think that's also very it's a game changer, I think, in people's lives. One hundred percent. I think that is one of the most important things is when you're struggling with an addiction, particularly something around sex addiction or porn addiction, that's so shameful, you tend to think you're alone, like you're a monster. And just hearing that somebody else has gone through it, or that other people struggle with it. And just as you said, just that thought, you're not alone. That alone is so healing, just to realize you're not the only one realize you're not, you know, a monster, because you have these desires. Um, that is so important for people. Yeah. This has been just a wonderful conversation. Probably one of my favorite interviews, to be completely honest. Now my yeah. other guests are going to email me and be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? Um, but I want to see if we could wrap up with with two questions that I usually ask my guests. Yeah. Um unrelated to to what we're talking about but i think Mm. it really kind of a window into the guest's life and likes and whatnot so um the first one is what uh book documentary movie anything that you've read or or watched that has made an impact lately that you would be happy to share with Mm. with folks that they could consume as well that material yeah there's two that come to mind one is a book that i read 
maybe a year ago and it had just one of my favorite authors and such an amazing book and related to this topic and that's the book called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Um, Cal Newport's an amazing writer. I love his style of writing. It's very pragmatic and just easy to digest and practical. And digital minimalism, it looks at what is it to be, you know, to have a an intentional relationship with the technology we use. We tend to think that if something has any benefit at all, any if some app or technology has any benefit, then we should adopt it and start using it. But we rarely pause and think, okay, what are the opportunity costs of using this? What is this taking away from my life? And it's not to say that anything is good or bad, but just to do that simple act of asking, what's the overall benefit or cost of this on my life? There might be some benefit, but if the costs outweigh the benefit, it's worth evaluating. And so that book, it's just, it's a beautiful book, Digital Minimalism. Um, The other book is a book that I just am reading now towards the end, but it's called Dopamine Nation. And it's another fantastic book by a researcher at Stanford who studies dopamine and you know how we get addicted to things um, so that's another one I would really highly recommend dopamine nation if you're interested in dopamine and why we get compulsive around the things that we do yeah. yeah digital minimalism I, I love that book as well and I think the most interesting part of the author is that um he teaches computer science and like software engineering and so to write a book about digital minimalism it's yeah. like you know, a bit ironic, but it's very, but it's great to see it from that perspective, right? From like, mm-hmm. I work in tech, I need LinkedIn in order to get, you know, a new opportunity, but I don't have one. Well, not only that, he's a famous, <laughs> you know, published author and a public intellectual. Yeah. And, you know, like many of probably your listeners who are creatives and entrepreneurs, yeah. we think we need social media to get our message out there. And he's a shining example of someone who says, my time is better well spent doing deep. I mean, deep work is another one of his books. That's amazing. But he says, my time is better spent doing deep work of creating things of value and and using my time that way, rather than spending all my time on social media, where I can't do the deep work that I need to do to create this stuff of value. So yeah, he's a great example of the fact that you can make it work without needing to get into social media. Yeah. Um, and my last question is, mm-hmm. if you could have dinner with anyone um, that are alive, anyone from time, anyone that you know personally, and just someone that you maybe would like to meet or look up to, who would that person be? Can I choose a fictional character? Yeah, go for okay. it. Because I, I, was, I was thinking about this, <laughs> uh, and it's hard for me to actually, I mean, there's so many people I would want to meet. Um, who are real people. Um, but Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings, for me, is just like, I would love nice. to, to, because he, to me, he embodies wisdom and compassion. You know, he's right. this powerful, badass wizard who, you know, is old as time itself. But then he's also kind and gentle and, and thoughtful. Um, so I know he's not a real person, but I always think of him as kind of like a, a mentor, or role model, or you know, an ideal aspiration um, for how I'd like to show up in the world. I think that's a great example. It's the first time that someone has picked someone like like that to have dinner with. So I I love that example just because yeah. of that reason. 
Yeah. Um, and so before we kind of close the episode, I wanted to give you the space to share where people can learn more about you, work with you and uh, any of the courses, any books, anything that you've created that people can can tune into. Yeah, I mean, the easiest way would be to check out my website, jeremylipkowitz.com. I'm also on Instagram, YouTube, um, and I'll be launching soon a, a new program for people who want to break free from porn addiction. Uh, so that'll be coming up soon. It's a it's an online uh, online course that helps you walk through what are the foundations, the fundamentals that you need in order to start to break free and get on that path to recovery. Um, so definitely look out for that if you're interested. But connect with me on any of the social media platforms or or shoot me a message through my website. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I had a great time. Jeremy's journey is encouraging and can lead many of us into our own journey of self-discovery. We discussed ambitions and how to balance them through our lives. But the biggest lesson from this episode is that being human is work. And this work is never really finished. You learn every day, every week, every month, every year. As you continue to find your own path. I will leave you with this one quote by Aristotle. Knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. For now, peace out. See you next time.